everybody. Welcome to Weekends with Anna Kasparian and Nando Vila. Nando, how you doing? I'm doing good. I'm back home. I got my books. Look, you see you people. Nice. You happy about that? <laughs> I love Monsters. it. Yes, Nando does read everyone. He does own books. <laughs> um, it's so good to be back. Um, you know, I was gone last week, but you guys really held it down and I enjoyed the show. Um, the interview with Matt Carp was fantastic. So for those of you who are tuning in right now, maybe you missed that interview from last week, make sure you subscribe to the Jacobin channel, uh, Jacobin Mag, youtube.com slash Jacobin Mag, and watch that interview with Matt Carp. And the commentary segments were excellent as well. Um, But that doesn't mean today's show isn't going to be fantastic. Uh, We're going to have what I think is one of the most important interviews uh, we can possibly have at this moment. It's with uh, Jane McAlevey, and she is a a legendary labor organizer. So we're going to talk strategy. We're going to talk about what needs to be done and how we can test strategies uh, in order to actually accomplish um, some protections for workers um, and, and beyond. So Really looking forward to that. Later on in the show, we're going to discuss the wildfires in California, Oregon, and Washington, and how uh, corporate Democrats are pretending to care about climate change. Uh, so we'll we'll probably dunk on them quite a bit. That's for our salt segment. Um, but we have great commentary segments as well. Before we get to all of that, Nando, let's do some banter. There's some banter that we let's, need to engage. Let's in. do some banter. You know, it's first of all, it's good to have you back. Uh, you know, I Thanks. had to I had to do all the heavy lifting last week, and I was you know panicking, sweating. My Wi-Fi was a little <laughs> was was crapping out. You know, I was like, you know, Anna, she brings a level of professionalism to this whole thing that 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 I miss. So it's good to have you back. But yeah, Anna, um, I just wanted to ask you about the um, about how, the the new child sex trafficking movie on Netflix. Like, do you think Netflix is now engaging in child sex trafficking? Because that's what. That's what everyone's talking about this morning on Twitter. They're canceling their Netflix because of child sex trafficking. Your thoughts? So, so I've read very little about that whole controversy. <laughs> um, honestly, as I was reading a little tiny bit of content on this, I was tempted to see what the movie was about. But then I got scared because I'm like, well, if I watch it or if I even just look at like two minutes of it, we're all being surveilled all the time. Is like my watch list going to somehow be leaked at some point and my life is going to be ruined and people are going to accuse me of crazy things. Like that's the insane surveillance state that we're living under right now. And there's also this element of just feeling like you're unable to ever disagree with whatever the popular opinion is on something controversial. So I, I, I fair, like I can't make a fair assessment on it yet, but I will say this. At a time when QAnon is no longer a small fringe group and it's really like expanded in so many different ways, it's really um, indicative of the Republican Party now. And I'm talking about the voters. I I just think that it's dangerous to use hyperbolic language that has to do with child uh, sex trafficking and all of that. Um, So we need to be, as Michael Brooks would say, uh, precise in our language And I'm worried that people are not being precise and they're not thinking about unintended consequences when they use hyperbolic language. So, um, and by the way, I've been plugging this all week because I thought that it was so well done, but um, TrueAnon had a conversation about QAnon 
And yeah. that's what really made me realize how uh, widespread you know, these conspiracy theorists really are. And they've expanded entry points. Like there are social media influencers that are helping to basically bring unsuspecting people into this like crazy decentralized group of conspiracy theorists. And um, it's dangerous because they believe things that just are demonstrably false. And they accuse innocent people of engaging in the worst type of criminality. And yeah, it's terrifying. Yeah, you know, uh, Ted Cruz is in on the game. He's he's canceling Netflix uh, over this movie. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard is in on the game. She's canceling Netflix uh, because of because of this movie. It just, you know, I just can't escape the the feeling that we're living in a absolute moral panic um, over. Like, I mean, it's think about what's going on. We have this coronavirus pandemic, the greatest economic collapse in a hundred years. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people dying and we're pan like our system and our leaders are panicking over a Netflix movie. And especially like you said, like they're kind of knowingly or not, they're kind of fueling the flames of this QAnon insanity that is like, you know, obsessed with child sex trafficking. Like it is not unreasonable to think that like some crazy person might show up at Netflix and like just start, you know, killing people because of this, you know, like it's, uh, yeah. It's just so irresponsible from from them to be stoking this this insane, stupid uh, controversy. And, and like you know, these guys, these are senators and, and Congress people. Like, do your job, govern uh, over what you can govern over, and like deal with the pandemic, deal with the economic crisis. Like, well, Twitter campaigns like this are just insane for our, our public leaders to be doing. But it's not as if they're making a mistake, right? Like, no. I, I genuinely think that getting involved in these types of, like, culture wars is intentional because it gives people this illusion of politicians or our representatives doing what's best for America, when in reality, right. it, it allows them to deflect from the very topics and issues that they should be focusing on, you know, um th- the poverty uh, that so many Americans are feeling right now, they don't want to do anything about that because their corporate donors don't want them to do anything about that. And so this is just an easy way, like using moral panic, exploiting moral panic to give people this illusion that our representatives are actually representing us um, is the go-to strategy right now. And we need to call it what it is. Now, again, I haven't really read too much into this movie. Um, The whole topic makes me uncomfortable. So (laughs) I don't have a strong opinion on it, at least not yet. Um, But I do think that, you know, there's a reason why there's so much focus on this as opposed to the issues that negatively impact the vast majority of Americans. Right. Well, speaking of corporate donors... This show is brought to you by Verso Books. Uh, now you can join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one or more new books in the mail if you choose a print subscription. All Verso Book Club members will also get 50% off all books for as long as you are a subscriber. To celebrate their 50th anniversary and the launch of the book club, each member tier is 50% off for the first three months. The Comrade tier is now $20, and if you join in September, you'll get Climate Crisis and the Global Green New Deal, The Political Economy of Saving the Planet by Noam Chomsky and Robert Poland, Glitch Feminism, a Manifesto by Legacy Russell, 
Corona, Climate, Chronic Emergency, War, Communism in the 21st Century by Andreas Malm, Care Manifesto, The Politics of Interdependence by The Care Collective, and a new edition of The Groundings with My Brothers by Walter Rodney. Plus, you get eight additional ebooks. Damn, it's a lot of books. Yeah. A lot of books yeah. to fill those empty shelves, Nando. Get it together. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I love it. Okay, well, let's get to our commentary segments. Um, I'm in the hot seat. I'll start off. And uh, I feel I feel like maybe I'm beating a dead horse with this topic because I, feel, I keep talking about it, but I care about it a lot because I care about the importance of journalism, which, of course... Um, is not being carried out appropriately in the United States, and there are consequences to that. So, seems like very few people find it reasonable to critique Bob Woodward's decision to sit on critical audio recordings of Donald Trump admitting that he was intentionally downplaying coronavirus as early as February 7th of this year. Now, I want you guys all to just take a moment and think about where your head was when it came to coronavirus in February. Even by late February, did you take the virus seriously? Was it on your radar? Were you engaged in behaviors that were risky or dangerous um, as this virus was quickly spreading here in the United States? And, And the truth is, Most people, myself included, didn't really know if COVID-19 was real. Is this another like SARS epidemic? Is this really something that's going to impact me? Is this, and I got to be honest, is this something that maybe the Democratic Party is trying to amplify as a way to hurt Donald Trump? I literally asked that question uh, to one of my colleagues in February, right? So there are a lot of reasonable people who would take a pandemic seriously, who were in the dark about coronavirus because Donald Trump wasn't talking about it publicly and Bob Woodward was sitting on incredibly important audio that might have led to people doing what it took to prevent the spread of this virus early on. Now, if you haven't heard what I'm talking about, uh, well, Bob Woodward Woodward is coming out with a book very, very soon to promote the book. He uh, released some of these audio recordings uh, from the 18 conversations he had with Donald Trump. Here's one of the audio recordings, which took place on February 7th of this year. And so what was uh, President Xi saying yesterday? Well, we were talking mostly about the... uh the virus. And I think he's going to have it in good shape. But, you know, it's a very tricky situation. It's uh, it goes it goes through air, Bob. That's always tougher than the touch. You know, the touch, you don't have to touch things. Right. But the air, you just breathe the air. and That's how it's uh, passed. And so that's a very tricky one. That's a very delicate one. Uh, It's also more deadly than your, you know, your even your strenuous flus. You know, people don't realize we lose 25,000, 30,000 people a year here. Who, who would ever think that, right? I know. It's, I mean, much it's pretty forgotten. amazing. And uh, then I say, well, is that the same thing? For, this is uh, more right. deadly. This is 5 per, you know, this is 5% versus 1% and less than 1%. You know, so this is deadly stuff. That was February 7th, where Donald Trump acknowledged that this is an airborne virus And he acknowledged that it's more deadly than the flu. Okay. Did the majority of Americans know that in February? No, they didn't. Okay. So while Trump absolutely understood the severity of this virus, he intentionally spread misinformation. 
And Bob Woodward knew the truth all along, didn't release these audio recordings until he was about ready to promote his book, which I find absolutely unacceptable. And for the Democratic voters who come at me and accuse me of being pro-Trump because I have a problem with the lack of ethical behavior by someone who's supposed to be a legendary journalist, just understand that this country isn't just about the 35% of Trump voters, people who will stand by Trump no matter what. It's also about the rest of Americans who do respond to actual evidence, who do respond to medical experts, and would have changed their behavior had they known early on that this was a serious virus. But corporate Democrats have latched on to any scandal that might make Donald Trump look bad because they understand that their party, with Joe Biden running in the general election, has absolutely nothing to offer. No ambitious policy proposals, no promises of systemic change, only, hey, guess what? Joe Biden has a little bit of empathy And also, look at how terrible Donald Trump is. I think that that is an insanely terrible campaign strategy. And I think that it has failed in the past. But more importantly, it's excusing the fact that Bob Woodward held on to this audio as nearly 200,000 Americans died from this virus. And he waited until he was ready to promote his book. That is unethical to say the least. And I'm not going to buy any of the arguments protecting him, including the ridiculous argument that Bob Woodward isn't um, a daily reporter. He really likes to report on the big picture. I don't care what Bob Woodward's job is. I don't care what format he prefers. If he puts himself in the position of a journalist, he needs to think of it as a public service. But under this capitalistic model... He understood that it was more important to sell books by putting this audio out just a few weeks or a week before his book was going to come out to promote it. Now, um, it took seven months for us to hear that audio from February 7th. Seven months, nearly 200,000 American deaths. And, um, you know, on the exact same day uh, that Trump had that conversation with Woodward, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo actually bragged on Twitter about sending critical medical supplies to China. We have coordinated with U.S. organizations to transport more humanitarian relief to people in Wuhan. Personal protective equipment and other medical supplies donated by these organizations can help save lives in China and help protect people from the coronavirus. Well, that's just great. And as we all know, Our hospitals ran out of PPE just as the uh, pandemic and the virus was really starting to spread here in the United States. And it was a complete disaster. After that, on February 10th, uh, 26th and 27th, Trump continued to publicly downplay the virus by calling it uh, calling it something that was easy to get rid of, something that would just go away. The virus. They're working hard. Looks like by April, you know, in theory, when it gets a little warmer, it miraculously goes away. I hope that's true. But we're doing great in our country, China. I spoke with President Xi, and they're working very, very hard. And I think it's going to all work out fine. And again, when you have 15 people, and the 15 within a couple of days is going to be down to close to zero, uh, that's a pretty good job we've done. It's going to disappear. One day, it's like a miracle. It will disappear. Oh, I'm not done yet. Uh, Again, the conversation with Woodward happened on February 7th. 
Uh, Then on March 4th, nearly a month after Trump first acknowledged the severity of the insanely contagious nature of COVID-19, he held a press conference telling Americans that it's safe to fly on commercial airlines. Is your message that to Americans that it's safe to fly? And can you convince the traveling yeah, public? I think where it? these people are flying, it's safe to fly. And large portions of the world are very safe to fly. So we don't want to say anything other than that. And uh, we have closed down certain sections of the world, frankly, and they've sort of automatically closed them also. And if they'll understand that, and they understand it better perhaps than anybody, yes, it's safe. Okay, so that was that was on March 4th, um, nearly a month after Trump had talked to Woodward, nearly a month after Trump had explained to Woodward that this was a highly contagious virus, airborne, and more lethal than the common flu. So did Woodward say anything about it then? Did he release the audio then? Of course not. Who cares? Why would he? You got to hold on to it so you can promote your book. Uh, On March 9th, when uh, the United States had nearly 1,000 confirmed cases of the virus, uh, Trump compared it to the common flu, okay? As we know from that February 7th um, audio recording, he had said that it's more deadly than the common flu, but he tweeted this. So last year, 37,000 Americans died from the common flu. It averages between 27,000 and 70,000 per year. Nothing is shut down. Life and the economy go on. At this moment, there are 546 confirmed cases of coronavirus with 22 deaths. Think about that. So he's essentially comparing it to the common flu and saying, this is no big deal. So did Woodward release any audio after that tweet? Of course he didn't. He just held on to it. Um, It would take weeks uh, for Trump to finally admit that coronavirus is not comparable to the common flu. Uh, He publicly admitted as much on March 31st. But before Trump fessed up publicly, um, he had another frank conversation with Bob Woodward about the severity of the virus 12 days earlier, 12 days earlier. So let's listen to that. Now it's turning out it's not just old people, Bob, just today and, and yesterday. Some startling facts came out. It's not just old, older yeah, exactly. young people to plenty of young people. So you, what's going d- on give in, me an, a, a moment of talking to somebody, going through this with Fauci or somebody who kind of uh, it caused a pivot in your mind, because it's clear just from what's in on the public record that you went through a pivot on this to, oh my God, the gravity is uh, almost inexplicable and unexplainable. Well, I think, Bob, really, to be honest with you... Sure, I want you to I be. wanted to. Uh, I wanted to always play it down. I still like playing it down. Yes, sir. Because I don't want to create a panic. Uh, we didn't hear that audio until a few days ago. <laughs> so... Just uh, keep that in the back of your mind as you consider all of the Americans who got sick. Um, You know, more than 6 million Americans uh, had confirmed cases of coronavirus. As I mentioned, nearly 200,000 deaths. But Woodward was silent until he was ready to promote his book. And I'm going to keep repeating that because that's really the heart of the issue here. Now, um, only five days after he had that conversation with Woodward on March 19th, uh, Trump actually decided to announce that he wanted to reopen the country by Easter. You, you said that we would, I'm paraphrasing now, you would like to be back to normal by Easter Sunday. Yes. That's 19 days from now. It's okay. Is that true? Is that possible? Or is I that think false it's possible. Why isn't it? I mean, we've never closed the country before and we've had some pretty bad flus and we've had some pretty bad viruses. And I think it's absolutely possible. 
So at that point, maybe it's a good time for Woodward to come out and say, mm, it's a terrible idea to open by April, April 12th. Maybe we shouldn't do that, especially because I have this audio with Trump admitting that this is severe. This is a severe situation, a very serious virus, and we shouldn't risk the lives of Americans by opening early. Now, do I think that Trump supporters would be you know, would respond well to that audio? Would it be persuasive enough for them? No, probably not. But again, it's not just about persuading Trump supporters. It's about giving average Americans, people who are responsive to logic and to evidence, the opportunity to do what it takes to keep themselves safe. Period. You got to keep in mind during this time, uh, Donald Trump not only uh, was pressuring states to reopen their economies, he was also uh, refusing to tell people to wear masks months after he had admitted that this is an airborne virus. He refused to wear his mask himself. Uh, He held a rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, Trump, along with countless other members of the GOP, pressured the states um, to not only open prematurely, but also to open their schools and to just completely ignore the guidelines put out by his own Centers for Disease Control. And it's just, obviously, there are going to be people who are desperate. There are people who want to get back to work. There are people who are sick of having to homeschool their kids. They want to send their kids back to school. So to hear someone like Donald Trump repeat over and over again that everything is fine constantly downplaying this virus, even some reasonable people might be tempted to buy into that argument and give into him greenlighting opening schools or opening businesses, right? And so Americans have suffered the consequences of Trump's lies. I want to give you exact numbers. And at this point, they're probably updated to be even higher. But as of September 10th, 2020, the Centers for Disease Control found um, that Six, um, 6,381,013 total cases of coronavirus, 191,353 deaths of coronavirus. And just in the last seven days, 248,939 um, cases, new cases of coronavirus. And so, look, as David Dayen writes in The American Prospect, I think this is just a perfect way of, of kind of summarizing the issue here. Bob Woodward sitting on information about presidential lies until he has a book to promote is, well, it's the difference between being a hungry reporter in 1973 and a palace courtier in 2020. Many people were going to die from minimizing the extent of the pandemic and not acting on knowledge of its impact. An author with as big a financial cushion as Woodward would recognize that and act in the interest of humanity rather than his first printing. And I absolutely agree with him. Again, if you only want to focus on hurting Trump in the upcoming election, You think that what Woodward did was great because you're under this myth that Trump supporters are going to walk away from him if they hear this type of audio. They're not. This audio, in my opinion, is going to do very little to help the Democrats because the Democrats are not offering anything that fundamentally changes the material conditions that Americans are living under, that workers are functioning under. All they're offering is the exact same thing that we got in 2016. Trump bad. Hillary, good. Hillary, nice. She go high. It's just not a smart strategy, number one. And number two, you should care about saving human lives. 
And Woodward could have done that by releasing this audio earlier so rational people could have done reasonable things to either slow the spread of the virus or prevent themselves from getting sick in the first place. I also want to read a few excerpts from an awesome uh, piece that was written by um, David Sirota in Jacobin. Um, so he writes, the tape of Trump admitting coronavirus was deadly and airborne was re- recorded in early February when there was very little public awareness in the United States of just how lethal the disease is. In fact, two days before Trump made his comments to Woodward, the Washington Post published a story about lawmakers on Capitol Hill pushing the White House to take the pandemic more seriously. Now, that's relevant. It's incredibly relevant because Bob Woodward attempted to defend himself. And he argued, well, I didn't know. I didn't know if Trump was lying to me. Well, you're a legendary journalist. You're a legendary investigative reporter. Why didn't you investigate it? Why didn't you look into what Capitol Hill was attempting to pressure Trump to do? I'm just not buying that argument. Sirota further writes, uh, you can easily imagine a Bob Woodward bombshell story in the same Washington Post two days later, revealing that contrary to his public statements, the president acknowledged that the situation is dire. Sirota further writes, you can then imagine that such a revelation might embolden the Democratic lawmakers demanding more aggressive action, and that might have led to tens of thousands fewer casualties. And by Woodward's own account, He was free to publish such story. He didn't have some prearranged agreement with Trump to hold publication. You know, some of the people who were trying to defend Woodward were like, well, I don't know. Maybe there was some sort of embargo on these interviews, and maybe that's the reason why he didn't do it. He didn't even have that type of contract. He was free to release this audio whenever he pleased. But again, he chose not to because he wanted to do so closer to the release of his upcoming book to promote it to sell as many books as possible. That's what this was about. And uh, I do want to read some of these uh, defenses of Woodward. One person writes on Twitter, I was angry at Woodward at first also. Then I thought about it and realized that if he had told us back then, we all would have just forgotten about it like everything else Trump does. Maybe this way it'll actually have some effect on the election. No, maybe if he had actually released it earlier, people would have done what it took to keep themselves safe from the virus. How about that? Maybe that's a little more important. It's not just about the election. It's about doing what's in the best interests of the American people, something that Woodward was unwilling to do when he uh, weighed the options of um, doing the right thing or making more money and selling more books. Sirota clearly explains the role of what a journalist should be. And I think many journalists have actually forgotten about this. He writes, the journalist's job is to contemporaneously report vital information so that the public is informed. That's why a free press is so critical to a democracy. It is supposed to provide a check on the government. And I absolutely agree with him. Um, And look, one other point that uh, David Sirota makes that I didn't see coming, but he's absolutely right about it. The fact that Woodward decided to sit on this audio is now being uh, weaponized by Trump. Trump is using it as a shield. And so (laughs) Trump downplayed um, his own disgusting, vicious, cruel behavior by saying, Bob Woodward had my quotes for many months. If he thought they were so bad or dangerous, why didn't he immediately report them in an effort to save lives? Didn't he have an obligation to do so? No, because he knew they were good and proper answers. Calm, no panic. Now, what Trump is saying there on its face is is true. It's right. And that's why I hate it so much. When 
people give Trump the ability to take the moral high ground, that's when we lose. And so Woodward was willing to do that, again, in order to promote his book. And that's pretty devastating. Doesn't take away from the great work he did in the past. People make mistakes. There's no question about it. But we need to stop thinking about things in a black and white way, in an unnuanced way, where someone is either 100% good, they've never made any mistakes, or 100% bad, they only make mistakes. People don't work that way. People do have their self-interests in mind. And I think the decision that Bob Woodward made in this particular case demonstrates that. And we need to be able to critique one another openly, honestly, so we can learn from those mistakes and not repeat the mistakes from history. All right, Nando. I'm sorry, I went on very long with that. (laughs) Not at all. No, it was great. I mean, you know, this is, to me, it's an open and shut case. I cannot even believe that there's a debate around it. It's, it's. And, and, and there's the sort of defenses um, that I see. One of them is like a fully black-pilled kind of defense, which is like it wouldn't have made a difference. Uh, it wouldn't have mattered. In that case, like why does anyone work in the media? Like if none of it matters, then then Woodward shouldn't even be reporting in the first place and blah, blah, blah. So you, you have to reject that outright because it just it, – it's the – it negates the entire premise of Bob Woodward even tr- doing this reporting in the first place. Um, but second of all, I think it would have mattered for two reasons. The first is that there's tape. Like if this was just Bob Woodward sitting down with Trump and then writing down what he, what they discussed, it wouldn't be the same as like releasing actual audio of it. And second of all, it's the timing of it, that it happened when people were generally, even people like, like us were like, I don't know, is this like a real thing or not? You know, Mm -hmm. that would have had it had it come out after the coronavirus became like enmeshed within the culture war, you know, of liberals versus conservatives and all that stuff, then it would have mattered less. But if it came out before all that craziness, you can imagine governors, first of all, you can imagine Republican governors having more political cover to do something uh, about the coronavirus, you know, because often they do it, you know, their response was clearly just like meant to not upset Trump. But like this might have given them some political cover. And it also like would have probably influenced some Democratic governors. I mean, the six days between the uh, California lockdown and the New York uh, lockdown, there was a six day gap there. Mm-hmm. That likely mm-hmm. caused the deaths of thousands, if not tens of thousands of people in New York. Um, this yeah. might have changed that, you know, like l- literally like the, you can imagine like, OK, well, the Democrats would be like, OK, well, if the president is getting like these kind of inside briefings that <laughs> this thing is much more serious, even if, even though we don't trust him or believe, you know what I mean? Like just this tape, it's, it's very jarring. He's very frank and he's it's very obvious yeah. that it's like what he really believes. Um and it's just like and this so whole, detailed. It's so detailed. Like he's clearly getting the, yeah. the information, and it's just you know everything about. I mean, remember the whole Kelly Loeffler thing where you know she was trading uh, stock on the information while publicly yeah. denying it. It's it, it's just um, it's an absolute heinous um, dereliction of journalistic duty um, from Bob Woodward. It's one of the worst I can remember. Um, really, um, it's one of like the worst breaches of journalist, journalistic ethics that I can remember in my lifetime easily. I mean, this is like on par with the New York Times delaying the reporting on, on the legal surveillance, uh, the Bush administration's legal surveillance until after the election. Like, mm-hmm. It's like in, on that same plane. So. It, it drives me crazy. The only thing that makes me more furious at, at the decision that Woodward made 
is just the defense that we keep hearing over and over again from Democrats, right? Like defending him because they're like, no, it's better because this is closer to the election. It might actually hurt Trump. No, it's not. But it's so indicative of what the uh, what the Democratic Party has become, right? All of their eggs are in this. We got to beat Trump basket. And they're completely ignoring the value of human lives. Like it's it blows my mind. It's insane. Nando. I just, I keep, my mind keeps going back to, I went on a family cruise I know. in Florida in late February. Yeah. I was on a cruise, You might have not guys. gone. You think I would, I would, I, and I would have had the perfect excuse. I'm just kidding. It was great. It was, it was a fun cruise. And luckily we didn't get sick. Um, no, but you and I hosted the very last in-studio show for TYT yeah. I believe it was like March 18th or March 17th. Yeah. N- none of us were wearing masks. Way later. None of us like really. No. It's just crazy. It, the whole thing is crazy. And we really need to get our like mind right. Because first off, if you really do want to beat Trump, you have to acknowledge that this strategy used by corporate Democrats is a very risky strategy because you've got to give people something to vote for. And scandals just, you know, they call him Teflon Don for a reason. Just don't stick with Trump. So what are you going to do to inspire voters? And if the answer is nothing will fundamentally change, well, you're taking a huge risk. And human lives are being lost in the process. Anyway. All right, Nando. Uh, Can't wait to hear your commentary. All righty. Well, let's uh, switch gears a little bit and talk about something that's been on a lot of people's minds lately. Right-wing populism. It's the topic du jour as hosts like Fox News' Tucker Carlson and The Hills' Sagar and Jetty have had tremendous success by challenging certain Republican Party orthodoxies and adopting a sort of pro-working man rhetoric. Here's Sagar explaining what he means by the new right. What is the new right? It's a departure from the free market consensus that has broadly been established in the party since what, Barry Goldwater in the 1960s, and it's a return to the idea that we put our population at the center of our policy. Yeah, the emergence of these new right-wing populists who talk a lot about caring about the welfare of the American worker while maintaining a sort of social conservatism on things like reproductive rights and a strong sense of nationalism has led to furious debates on the left about whether they should be engaged with as potential allies in a united populist front against the neoliberal ideologues that control both parties. And what the right-wing populists realize is that the center cannot hold, that the neoliberal era is exhausted and discredited, that citizens across the Western world are disgusted with it, and that they need to change their tune if they're going to remain relevant. And they've actually been quite successful. As Thomas Piketty points out, the traditional left-wing parties across the Western democracies have abandoned their former base, which was rooted in the working class, for what he calls the Brahmin left, meaning the intellectual elite. The right-wing parties, meanwhile, are dominated by what he calls the merchant right, meaning business elites. As Piketty writes, quote, I argue that this structural evolution can contribute to explain rising inequality and the lack of democratic response to it, as well as the rise of populism, as low education, low-income voters might feel abandoned. And left-wing populists have propped up, such as Jeremy Corbyn in the UK and Bernie Sanders in the US, but they have not been as successful at gaining power than right-wing populists like Boris Johnson and Donald Trump have. 
And if you look at the class breakdown of voters, it is true that the Labour Party and the Democratic Party are both increasingly losing working class voters to their right wing enemies. This was true in the UK as the Labour Party lost support in its former strongholds in the North. And as Matt Carp pointed out in our interview last week, the hottest new demographic in the Democratic primaries were those that he calls Halliburton Democrats. So the working class is up for grabs, and right-wing populism has certainly, certainly proven to be a seductive proposition for a decent chunk of it. There's only one problem, and that's that right-wing populism has existed in many ways throughout history, but it has always failed to meaningfully engage with the one thing that really matters when it comes to helping workers, labor unions. This is a point that Dustin Guastella makes. That even though they're they're supposedly populist impulses, like these people on the new right and Trump himself. The thing that is consistent across all of them is anti-union, right? They are they are wall-to-wall anti-union, and even the ones who claim to want some realignment in the American system still can't bring themselves to terms with workers' own organizations. They really don't like the union movement. And without strong support for labor unions, any meaningful wealth redistribution is essentially impossible, and without wealth redistribution... There is no real populism. What we have instead, as shown by the supposedly right-wing populist Trump, is historic legislation to redistribute wealth upward to the already super-witch, the elites that he constantly rails against. In 2017, he passed the Trump tax cut, which represented a $2 trillion windfall to the rich. And in 2020, he signed the CARES Act, which provided the rich with a further $6 trillion. But now... A new proposal from one of the intellectual architects of the new right, a guy named Oren Cass, makes the conservative case for unions. On Labor Day, his organization, the American Compass, released its proposal saying, quote, Institutions of organized labor have traditionally been the mechanism by which workers take collective action and gain representation and bargaining power in the private sector. Strong worker representation can make America stronger. Unfortunately, our nation's Great Depression-era labor laws no longer provide an effective framework. Many unions have become unresponsive to workers' needs and some outright corrupt, and membership has fallen to just 6% of the private sector workforce. Rather than cheer the demise of a once-valuable institution, conservatives should seek reform and reinvigoration of the laws that govern organizing and collective bargaining. He explains further on Sagar and Jetty's podcast, The Realignment. Um, why should conservatives care about organized labor? As you said, and I think, look, this is one of the most common and I think fair critiques that we get from left populists is if you people are serious, then you should care about unions. And Michael Lind, um, who has been on this podcast and I think has always made it such a profound point, is that in a way, a union is a very conservative institution. It's a non-governmental way for or- workers to organize and barter for wages and better um, conditions of life that don't require an outright federal intervention in order to achieve a optimal societal goal. So just talk a little bit about maybe why conservatives seem to hate unions so much in the first place. Um, Are you outright now pro-union? What does that mean? What does a conservative pro-labor posture look like? Just go into all of that. Yeah, I think the starting point, exactly as you just alluded to, is is we have to clarify what we mean by union or or organized labor. That the, the way that unions work in America today is obviously very dysfunctional. And I think a lot of the, crit- the criticism that the traditional right of center has is, is exactly right. And increasingly, you hear it from the left of center, too. A lot of the smartest and most thoughtful 
um, left of center labor leaders, labor scholars will say that just this system does not make sense, is not working. And the answer isn't what the Democratic Party wants, which is just how do we force more people into these unions so they'll pay dues and su- mm. support Democratic politicians. Um, but but that the system that we have is a very different question from the, the concept of labor, the concept that workers should be able to, to come together and organize um, and and then exert power in the marketplace, um, have representation in the workplace. Uh, be able to work collectively for for their own interests and and to come to each other's aid and support. Yeah. Now, if it were true in some theoretical sense that the Republican Party all of a sudden outflanked the Democratic Party on the issue of collective bargaining on the left, that could potentially be a very big problem. This is how our late friend Michael Brooks reacted to that Dustin Guastella remark from a little earlier. If there was a if there was a right wing populism that was reformulating key economic issues, that would both be we would be in an even more serious and dangerous crisis. And conversely, the dialectic, we would be in much more interesting and dynamic times. Dustin, for his part, agrees that that would be a very serious threat. If the populist right had an economic program, it would mean that they could actually redistribute wealth. And that would be scary, a scary thing for the left, because they wouldn't change their convictions around xenophobia, and they wouldn't change their convictions around bigotry, and they wouldn't change their convictions around unions. But if they actually wanted to redistribute wealth, they could win a lot more votes. And that's, that's, I think, the thing that we have to, that's the, the balance we have to keep aware of. And the question is, can the Republican Party transform itself into the party that advocates for work, the working class against their corporate overlords? I don't think so. Uh, we love to shit on Democrats because of their fecklessness and corruption, but that party, as decrepit as it is, is not as captured by the merchant right or business elites as the Republican Party. As Jacobin founder Baskar Sunkara wrote in response to the Orrin Cass proposal, you can't endorse the interests of organized labor when the most important block in your party are big capitalists who don't want to compromise profits and control. They're too powerful to be cajoled into some sort of corporatist arrangement either. But that does not mean that we should not take the populist right seriously as a threat. As the Democrats drift more and more towards the party of the cultural elite, there will be significant portions of the working class that are susceptible to the rhetoric coming from the right. And I don't want to make the hysterical point that the guys like Tucker Carlson or Josh Hawley are the same as Nazis, but it is true that the fascists across Europe in the 1930s adopted a lot of the rhetoric of the left in order to peel off some working class voters away from the mass socialist parties. Right-wing populism emerges as a sort of response to a rising and powerful left. Classical fascism was, in part, effectively a massive employment program. Get the economy working by taking over industry and employing millions to build a war machine. And Mussolini actually passed several social insurance measures in the 1920s and strengthened what we would call the welfare state. In fact, when when New York City politician Grover Aloysius Whalen asked Mussolini about the meaning behind Italian fascism in 1939, the reply was, it's like your New Deal. They had to do this in part because Italy's northern manufacturing base was highly unionized and militant. Modern right-wing populism is just too wed 
to neoliberal economics and the capitalist class is not willing to give up ownership to stop a militant trade union movement because there isn't a militant trade union movement right now. Uh, And a perfect example of this is Trump refusing to use the Defense Production Act to essentially force industrialists to make PPE in response to the coronavirus. So while I don't think that Orrin Cass's proposals will be seriously adopted by any Republican lawmakers in the near future, as neoliberalism is in its final death throes, something is going to take its place. We on the left need to build a true class politics that goes beyond the culture war bullshit that divides the Brahmins from the working class. If we don't do that, blood and soil nationalism will rise from the ashes of neoliberalism. That was um, one of the more comprehensive and well thought out arguments I heard um, in regard to the populist right. And, and I know that it's like this controversial debate. I don't really think it needs to be. Um, I think that, you know, pulling from history to make your point is so important because we have history to learn from. And, you know, when you think about the kind of rhetoric that was utilized by the Trump administration and the GOP, to get Americans on board for the 2017 Trump era tax cuts, what did they focus on? What did they continuously talk about? How it's a middle-class tax cut. And even, look, even using that rhetoric, people didn't buy it. If you look at polling, the majority of Americans, including the majority of Republicans, um, voters were not in favor of the tax cuts because they knew that it was really just going to be tax cuts for the wealthy. Um, and funny story, there, there's this thing called the Web Summit that takes place every year. And I remember being at the Web Summit, listening to a panel where there were a few conservatives who were uh, pushing for the Trump tax cuts. And uh, one of the panelists said, middle class tax cut. I had just lost my voice from laryngitis, and I was like, it's for the wealthy. It's for the <laughs> my, my My husband's like, relax, calm down. But anyway... Um, I just see it as a Trojan horse. It's a Trojan horse. Like, we all know it. Um, We see the utter disdain uh, the Republican Party and conservatives have for working people. Uh, We also see how Tucker Carlson uses populist language to reel people in. And then he immediately pivots to the xenophobia, the homophobia, the bigotry, all of that. Um, The anti-immigration rhetoric So I just see it as an avenue in which, you know, they exploit the vulnerabilities of working people in order to um, inject their their poison and their venom. And and we just don't need it and we shouldn't fall for it. I mean, the Tucker Carlson thing in general uh, just annoys me because I'm old enough to remember young Tucker Carlson, who was like a cartoon elitist. I mean, like you wore a bow tie. I mean, uh, this is not like controversial uh, a take or anything like that. I mean, just his rebrand as this sort of working man's hero is just so remarkable. But like what I what I think is important to understand is that there's certain people who you could call, quote unquote, on the left who are. Um, do, adopting this pose of you know treating these uh, right wing populists kind of at face value, um, without an understanding of the historical context, but also um, you know co- like uh, rejecting sort of the traditional left um, arguments, mostly out of a sort of what I would call a cultural grievance about some of the more annoying aspects of the culture on the left in this country. Um, and so they, they, you know, they're calling these themselves like post left or whatever. And like what that is to me is just a, a sort of um, uh, a, an arrogant um, rejection of 
all these debates have we, all the debates we are, we're having today have already been had a million times. I mean, something this is a point I yeah. always make. There is no such thing as a new politics. Like you can tweak certain things. Like you know, yes, the gig economy does feel like a kind of a new thing, a new challenge, and, and things like that. But but for the most part, these debates that we that we are raging today have already been had a hundred years ago by people way smarter than us. And you know, all you need to do is look back and 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 understand. And like that, the, so. To sort of uh, believe that you can come up with some sort of new synthesis um, is just like to to me incredibly arrogant and just foolhardy. And what you're doing is just walking into the lion's den. Like the right wing populists are not going to be your friends. I'm not saying you should like cancel them or like you know anyone who appears on Rising is like platforming fascism or whatever. Like that that's not what I'm saying at all. You know, and I'm not criticizing like someone like Bernie Sanders kind of strategically working with uh, you know a right winger on certain bills that you know there might be some overlap on that's that's not the point um the point is that we need to take them seriously and and provide a real alternative um because if we don't like they're gonna win and they're gonna you know they're gonna beat us i don't know how to explain it no no you're okay so i want to differentiate because i think that there's a mistake in in confusing these people in positions of power, um, people like Tucker Carlson or members of the GOP who use populist rhetoric, right, um, in order to basically appeal to people when in reality, like their underlying objectives are actually against labor. They're different from, let's say there are conservative members of the electorate, right? They're maybe socially conservative, but they're workers, yeah. And so I, I think that the Democratic Party or unfortunately, we still have to function under the Democratic Party. Right. Like, yeah. I think movements need to have broad coalitions. And I think one of the things that works against us is this holier than thou self-righteous like purity nonsense yeah. where we don't want to work with people. And when I say we, I don't literally mean the two of us, but I, I mean the left doesn't want to necessarily work with people if they don't 100% agree with them on every social issue. And I think that that's wrong. I I think you can bring people in and you can persuade them to maybe change their minds on certain social issues. But we have to focus on what unites us as workers. And it's really the material conditions that we're dealing with in this country where inequality continues to be uh, a bigger issue every year, a bigger problem every year. Um, So, yeah, I think that there's that differentiating um, doesn't really happen much in these conversations. And I think that we need to pivot to that. Yeah. No, this is a point that, that, that Dustin that Dustin made in that in that Michael clip. If you watch the whole thing, it's like the this is something that Republicans understand very well. Republicans don't run on their most unpopular policies. They pass them once they're in power. I mean, like eviscerating worker protections is unpopular. They never talk about it in the on the campaign trail, but they do it once they're in power because it's something they believe in. Right. You know, the left can do the same thing. This is something that Bernie in general was very good at is just is focusing on the stuff that was popular about his agenda and trying to avoid uh, the stuff that was as unpopular, which doesn't mean that he's changing his convictions or throwing anyone under the bus. It's just, you know, the rhetorical style you adopt and all that stuff is is, is important in, in trying to win over and have certain crossover appeal with regular voters and especially with workers. Um, you know, th- that doesn't mean that uh, like 
that Tucker Carlson is the same as, you know, some, uh, some worker in wherever in the middle of the country. That's just, it's a different thing. You know, you have, you're competing with Tucker Carlson for that person's attention and support. Um, and, and it's, it's just, we have to like see that in a, in a fundamentally different way, but, but yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Well, um, we have the perfect guest to kind of help us dissect all of this and what the left can do um, in being strategic uh, to not just mobilize people, but more importantly, to organize people and um, get what we need uh, out of our employers, get the concessions we need, better pay, better working conditions. Um, So joining us now is Jane McAlevey. She's uh, an organizer, campaign strategist, and author. And she's also the host of Organizing for Power Strike School. Uh, We have a fun video for that. Let's take a quick look and we'll start our conversation. Sarah Nelson, president of the Association of Flight Attendants, and for the past year and a half, I've been elevating the discussion about a general strike. When I first uttered the words general strike, I did so when close to two million workers were being held hostage by their boss in the White House. This behavior towards workers is nothing new in the United States, but it hasn't been seen at a scale like it is today since the early 1930s. Incidentally, the last time Economists and the political elite wrote off workers and unions as a thing of the past. There is nothing, nothing more powerful in capitalist systems than workers withdrawing their labor. Nothing. General strikes, I can't even imagine them because they haven't happened in my lifetime. Not in the U.S., right? We haven't had anything like a general strike in my entire lifetime. To get to a general strike is going to take actually a lot of method and a lot of discipline. That's why I'm helping Jane McAlevey and a team of international organizers networking together with support from Rosa Luxemburg Institute in Germany to launch a strike school this September and October. We can build the kind of unparalleled worker power produced by supermajority strikes. Join us. Hey, Jane. Nice. So nice to have you on with us. Thank you for taking the time. Nice to be with you. So um, I want to direct the audience to two books that you've uh, written. I think they're important and very relevant for the conversation we're having today. No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age, and also A Collective Bargain, Unions, Organizing, and the Fight for Democracy. And, um, you know, you, you're you so comprehensive in your books because you do something important, and I think it's missing from a lot of conversations. Uh, you talk about the history of, of labor unions and how they came to pow- how they came to power, and then how they were weakened. So, can we start off by talking about the history a little bit and what it was? What happened between 1935 and 1947? Um, what led up to that era of labor unions, and what made labor unions so powerful during that time period? Yeah. Um, first of all, there's so much to say just from the opening that the two of you were having, the dialogue you were having, and then, um, and then Nando's sort of commentary, uh, and the and the conservative, like everyone was reading, right? That the the two different pieces that came out this week about the conservative sort of posturing about whether or not they should be pro-union. Um, there's about a million motorcycle uh, people going past right now, so it'll pass. Um, but so. I think there are several things that are really important that people often forget. Let's start with what led to the 1935 National Labor Relations Act. The 1935 National Labor Relations Act, which flawed in many ways, and we can discuss what those flaws are, 
uh, but it was still the most radical piece of sort of working class labor legislation um, passed at that time with all sorts of racist stuff tucked into it, like the entire history of the United States. But for the moment, let's just acknowledge that when workers in this country received a sort of legal right, some workers received the legal right to collective bargaining, it happened because of massive, sustained, illegal strikes in 1933 and 1934 that are generally sort of like washed out of the history books. I mean, all this stuff is washed out of the history books, but even in even among sort of like progressives or leftists, uh, most people think they point to 1936 as the beginning of the mass unionization, which is the sit down strikes um, in Detroit and in Flint and in the state of Michigan in the auto plants. The truth is, it was the massive strikes that forced uh, FDR and Congress to pass the, Na the National Labor Relations Act that actually then got us. Uh, to the later, uh, you know, amazing strikes that happened that set the power for workers winning the kind of contracts, frankly, collective bargaining agreements that were life-changing. Um, and what's interesting to me and what I try and highlight in both of those books, um, and actually the first book too, um, is there are workers today still winning contracts as profound and powerful as 1936 we just don't hear a lot about it because there's certainly less of it happening, but it is still happening. And those of us still doing it are using the same methods that they were using back in, 19, in the 1930s. So uh, it's sort of the, I mean, building on something that Nanda was saying earlier, you know, there's no real news story. There's just, do we, do we know our history? Do we know what worked and didn't work in terms of the methodological approach to the work? Because uh, one thing that uh, is really true is that massive strikes generally in the United States do not happen because workers like wake up one day and go, hey, let's just have a massive strike. It's just not reality. It was in the 1930s and it's not today, but workers can still kick some serious ass um, and win. So I didn't quite give you the, the 35 to 47 yet, or then the, like the way I break down the, the, the new book is I give chunks of periods that I'm analyzing, right? And then what the, the right wing rollback begins in 47. But I think it's so important to talk about 33, 34, and 35, and the strikes that forced the policymakers to make the policy that then enabled way more working class people uh, to fight their way out of dire poverty, which we are experiencing right now. Yeah, I, I, I want to ask about that because the you know it's I, I, like you mentioned all of this history is just basically erased. No one knows it. Like it's not discussed in history textbooks. It's not discussed in on the History Channel. It's you know it's, there's a lot of like D-Day stuff, but not, not none none of this stuff. Yeah. Um, but like the, you know the, the passage of the 1935 uh, like the Wagner Act and, and then the that that 12 year period until Taft Hartley can you talk about Taft Hartley in 1947 and what it did i mean it's it's just it's remarkable how brief that period was like how quickly they realized like oh we got to we got to we got to undo all that stuff yeah so talk about the Taft Hartley act and its effect i will i will but i also want to do i also just want to mention again i think a mischaracterization of Taft Hartley or a way that i try and frame it in the new book um and this this is the pleasure of me you know, having been an organizer for 25 years and then finally pausing, uh, I called it taking a nap, like a break uh, to study for a while and get the PhD, which was like a way seriously to just take a break. And reading so much history that I had not, um, that I as a trade union organizer who had won a lot of campaigns, did not even understand. So Taft-Hartley comes along in 1947. Now, what's important when you go look at all those charts that show income, income inequality shrinking, 
income inequality, growing. And they're endless. They're in my books, but they're all over the web. They're everywhere. So there, there's just no question that the 12-year period when workers had robust rights to organize where the employers could not come in and campaign and do the things that they're completely able to do today uh, in sort of like unionization campaigns, which are like many wars. Um, that period led to so much working class power that the, that the structures, that the victories of what was settled in those contracts literally shifted us into a period where income inequality was really radically going down and it was radically being reduced because the power inequality had changed, right? Workers actually had something, some, something approaching a fair playing field by which they could try to unionize and go on strike. So 47 hits. And I think there's a lot of shit out there about what happened in 47 and why. And the most common stuff right now is people trying to say um, it was a uh, Taft-Hartley, which takes away a lot of the rights that workers had won in 35. I'll get there. But a lot of people saying it happened because of the huge strike wave in 1945 and 46 when mm. U.S. troops were coming home. And I, I just think we got to squash that narrative. I don't I don't buy it. And I don't think the history plays it out. I want to argue and do argue that one of the primary reasons for Taft-Hartley um, was the Jim Crow Southern delegation in Congress realizing that unions were moving into the South as veterans were coming home from World War II. It was, it was a little harder to like shoot down guys in uniforms who had just helped fight fascism and save the country. Unions were moving more aggressively into the South. Unionized plants, of which there's a beautiful history of this in a great book called Negro and White Unite and Fight. Just an amazing history book. Um, someone's dissertation, but really good to read. Uh, and the unions were moving into the South and every place you had a really a radical union, let's just be clear, there's always been good unions and not good unions. So when I'm talking about unions, I'm usually talking about the good ones. So where the good unions existed, they were creating a non-Jim Crow environment in the in huge factories in the South. Mm-hmm. And it was getting harder to fight that, right? When guys were coming home in uniforms, like, uh, uh-oh, um, what do we do now? So they passed this act called the Taft-Hartley Act, They team up with some northern industrialists. Of course, northern industrialists don't want to share power with workers, right? They never did. But so there's a there's a moment about preserving Jim Crow and about stopping the progressive and radical influence of the best unions in this country, who, in fact, were challenging racism in a way that I think is often negated when we talk about Mm. um, class and race and gender and how fundamentally they have to be seen as one big fight. Uh, in the USA. So mm. that's, that's, that's Taft-Hartley. And it just undoes, it basically takes a knife to Taft-Hartley. It undoes it. It makes it legal again for the boss to run competing uh, campaigns where they can just campaign against unions in any unionization election. Uh, it bans solidarity strikes. It makes it, it, I always say, I frame it in the new book as saying like, they literally banned human solidarity, right? I mean, mm. to stop workers from teaming up across gender, race, and class immigrants, black folks back in the 40s, they had to literally find ways to like make illegal human solidarity. Uh, And that's Mm -hmm. what Taft-Hartley in in some simplistic terms really did. And it still takes though another, like I say, from 47 until the early 70s, we're still ending income inequality because that 12 year period of structural power built by the working class in key industrial sectors allowed us to keep winning really good contracts. It's not until like what I call the next wave 
of the assault on workers through unions and attacks on unions through workers begins, which is the, the rise of the sophisticated union busters. And that's in the early 1970s. So let's let's fast forward to uh, some of the rhetoric that's used today uh, by Republicans, uh, because I think it is relevant in in kind of understanding what their strategies are, but also acknowledging, you know, some of the flaws in the way unions operate today. So, for instance, Republicans always overplay the power of unions, even as unions year by year um, seem to get weaker. Um, and in your book, you mention a statistic from 2016 that um, I didn't even realize was as bad. Uh, when you break down campaign donations to politicians um, based on corporate donors and union donations, um, unions are outmatched 16 to one. Okay. It's just insane. Yeah. So um, that's a problem. Money in politics um, is certainly an issue here. But that being said, unions also gave Hillary Clinton, of all people, who was uh, formerly on the board of Walmart, $100 million in 2016, which, you know, it blows my mind. So could you talk about that a little bit? I can, definitely. But I want to I want to do an illustration, uh, a continued illustration of that, which I was looking at just yesterday of this imbalance and sort of the rhetoric like, some of the some of the semantical or rhetoric we hear a lot, like when when the right wing or the corporate right or frankly neoliberal Democrats are talking, this idea of big labor. They always talk about like big labor, you know, and like they mm. have to balance the power of big labor. And uh, as an organizer, it makes me batshit. So here's a really good example: the Wall Street Journal yesterday is doing an article about um, two two key ballot initiatives that are happening that are playing out in California, which are super important. Uh, if we can breathe, by the way, in, in time for the election. But anyway, two key ballot initiatives in the state, one of which is um, about Uber and Lyft uh, and trying to force them to pay taxes on their employees because they're actually employees, right? Those companies direct their work. Big debate. Um, but the other one is really also super important. And I've been doing some work on this for the last year, which is Yes on 15, a super important ballot initiative that will, what we call, remove the historic era um, in what was Proposition 13, the original anti-tax movement that grows out of California in 1977. Prop 15, uh, and it's a Yes on 15, by the way, for us, Prop 15, um, the spending by the business elite, I just want to get, just to, just to bring that number current from 2016 to now on one ballot initiative, the spending that Wall Street Journal reported by the business elite against us, right, against fairness, um, is, is at $180 million in spending right now in the campaign cycle. And our side, which they refer to as big labor, is at $6 million. So we're $6 million in a fight to make corporations pay their fair share of taxes in a pandemic that's destroying workers, and they've put $180 million into the same ballot initiative. So I just, when people say big labor, and I hear liberals, and I even hear leftists say it. And it may, so I just want to ask people, like, stop saying it. It's just, it's not a useful <laughs> technology, right? So, and then, but then to, back to your question. So, okay, that's the imbalance. We just need to keep talking about how substantial that imbalance is. Um, and then the truth is, like, you know, then the unions, like, threw down with Hillary Clinton, just like unions are throwing down with Joe Biden. I mean, I think that that's... Look, I <laughs> I think that the candidate to beat Donald Trump the first time and the second time was Bernie Sanders. Um, and I don't mean that out of a I mean that as a strategist. I don't mean that as a, um, you know, 
I mean, I, I sort of have grown to love Bernie now, but I, di I didn't wake up as a trade union organizer who's a woman who works in mostly women of color fields. Like, great, let's let's get that old guy from Vermont, you know, who's white as our candidate. Like that was not my initial impulses. But to be honest, there is no question that Bernie Sanders was the candidate to beat Trump in 2016, not Hillary Clinton. And it's a it's a it's a shame and it's emblematic of both a lack of rank and file democracy in most unions, like who makes the decision in most unions about those political endorsements is not uh, like a majority vote of the rank and file, by the way. Um, and that's a problem. And so, you know, we know that in 2016, there was huge pushback in some of the teachers unions and some of the healthcare workers unions, some of the more dominant unions that reflect today's U.S. economy where workers, um, just don't really have much of a say in who their union's endorsing at the national level. And that's, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to obsess about it. I mean, the truth is at the end of the day, we need a, we need a, we need a rebuilt, better, stronger trade union movement like nobody's business right now. And I wake up every day trying to do my part in, in making that happen. Um, but there's so many issues about basic uh, democracy. And, you know, when I led a union, there was only one period when I was sort of like leading a statewide union versus running international or national campaigns and negotiations and blah, blah, blah. Um, and one of the very first things we did was we completely radicalized the bargaining process. So we said every single um, worker in the union represented by any of our contracts is welcome at the bargaining table. Super radical idea and super simple in my opinion. I'm just going to say that again, like open up the bargaining process to your workers. But the second one is we opened up the political endorsement process. So we fully democratized bargaining, the collective bargaining process itself. And we did huge open meetings where every single worker was invited to come and put their hands up. And if, if politicians wouldn't come in to meet all the workers, they were like, no, we want to talk to you and the executive board. And I'd be like, kiss my ass because it's their vote. You know what I mean? So there are simple things that we could do if we wanted to, to like bring way more workers excitedly into the process of politics. And it starts with unions inviting them much more centrally into not just like, not just as like, oh, I'm the tired nurse. Um, and here's why it'll be better to have a Democrat, but like actually engaging them in the political process inside the union would be a, a simple um, and good thing to do. Can you discuss the difference of what you call mobilizing and organizing. Can you explain that difference? Yeah. It's never that easy, actually, ironically. Um, but, you know, for me, um, what distinguishes organizers and organizing from activists and mobilizing? So these are semantically really specific words to me. Um, yeah. but organizers and activists are different. Um, we overlap, but there's actually differences. So organizers uh, wake up in the morning um, attempting focused like all day on two things. Uh, what have we done to bring people who are not involved in any sector of our movement and don't identify as being people in a movement into the movement? That's base expansion, right? And that's why, despite all the complexities of trade unions, I'm a trade union organizer. Because when you do trade union work, you have to contest with whoever the boss hired. Whoever the boss hired is who I have to talk to if we're going to try and teach those workers to win a campaign. Uh, and mobilize, right? So I, Trump voters, people who don't vote, black workers, white workers, Filipinas, tensions among them, white nurses saying we wish those Filipinas would stop speaking that other language. And, you know, what, there's so many real world issues that if you're a trade union organizer, you got to learn how to deal with or you're all just going to lose, right? So, and mobilizing is um, activist 
based and it's good and we need a lot of it. Um, but it's people who wake up spending almost all their time talking to people who already agree with us. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you wake up in the morning and you spend all of your time going to mobilizations, marches, rallies, protests, direct action, again, great. You know, I was one of the two times that the Bay Bridge has been shut down. I was on that delegation getting surrounded by a million guys with guns and stuff like I'm down with shutting down bridges. But there was a moment for it. (laughs) Yeah, it was amazing. Actually, it was the beginning of the Gulf War way back. I don't know, 1991. Um, But uh, it was really well done. And I wish that even Occupy people had thought how much divert we did, like which bridge we were taking anyway. um, So I love a good direct action. But it's not how I spend most of my time because we are losing the fight right now and have been losing it for a long time. So most of my time is spent talking to workers who don't want to talk to me, who don't think that they want a union, who think a union is a bad thing because of public narrative around it and aren't convinced it's good at all um, and may even have had a bad experience in a previous workplace in one, right? That's real, by the way. So um, so organizers focus on bringing brand new people who might even think they're on a whole different side of us into through a very careful process um, with a lot of method and discipline, helping them come to see, um, in the case of a union, uh, actually that actually getting together with their coworkers and forming a union is actually the only way um, out of the crisis that their family is in. And that's that's hard to do, you know? And I feel like activist work um, can be really fun, makes us feel good. I went to the march today. I held up my sign today. Uh, but if we didn't bring anyone else into the work today, I'm not that interested. I'm just not. This is the part of the conversation that's so, I mean, all of this is important, but this is what I I really want to emphasize, uh, because I think you're absolutely right. You know, I I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who's a therapist. She was talking about unresolved trauma and how you got to do the work, right? And the same thing applies when it comes to fundamental change, systemic change in this country, um, or even just in your workplace, right? You need, you need to do the work. And that requires you to engage in uncomfortable discussions and also to expand your mind and be a little more, a little less judgmental toward people you might disagree with on any given issue, right? And, and that's a difficult thing to do right now because everything in the U.S. has become weaponized, um, especially by the Democratic Party when they don't want to focus on economic policy in any way. They want to deflect. And the best way to do that is to focus on our differences, you know, the divide and conquer strategies. Let's focus on identity and how um, discussing feminism isn't enough. Like we need to talk about uh, misogyny toward black women and how that's fundamentally different from misogyny toward white women. Like all meant to divide all of us. We're all different and we can't fight together in solidarity. How do we combat that? Because I think that the left falls victim to that narrative over and over and over again. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the first thing I think is, um, I mean, again, uh, for all the people, for all the armchair critics, you know, out there of the trade union movement, which there's a lot, uh, especially in the left, um, you know, until unless and until you actually run a campaign where you can get a Trump voter to change their mind about Trump um, and unite up with black and Filipina and everyone else and where they learn through the process, right? Like organizing has a series of steps. There are things we do in a certain order. We create conditions that allow workers to come to their own conclusion that maybe actually the boss has actually maybe been lying 
about <laughs> why they can't have a pension. I mean, it may actually be a lie. Like, you know, what the left does, and I used to care, I used to make more fun of it in the old days, sorry, but like, you know, shoving newspapers and three-point font at you when you would go to some old left conference. And I'd always be like, Jesus Christ, this is your strategy. I'm not in your party because this is insanity. Like no one's reading three-point font, no pictures, you know, stuff you're handing out. And now we just do it on social media. We repeat the idea, but like, get out of it. You know what I mean? It's, it's what's going to work is when you connect with somebody. And I think Anna, as you said, kind of take them seriously. I mean, why would a work, why would a worker, why would a woman nurse take real life examples in my organizing work? You know, why would a nurse who's been married to a, a cop for sake of argument her whole life um, in a pretty white neighborhood, um, not uh, by the time we got to a difficult discussion about Black Lives Matter, like why would that nurse be well positioned unless and until she had a, a good union? Like why would, where would she have had a conversation about that there might be some issues with the structure of the employment um, uh, that her husband's engaged in, right? Like mm-hmm. who's putting food on the table? And she she worries about him going out. Oh, believe me, I'm not, I am not an apologist whatsoever. I'm like Black Lives Matter all the way. But But as an organizer, I have to hear that nurse who's a leader in her unit and who's going to decide whether or not we win that campaign because it's a 99 member. It's a, there's 99 workers voting in the emergency department of that unit. By the way, emergency department nurses are married to cops and firefighters. That's just who they all see. It's like a, it's a joke in the trade union movement and it's real. So like, you know, what would, where, where else would she have that conversation if not sitting down with um, an organizer and having a really hard conversation about her collective interest um, and how different the experience is of a different worker who's black who, she, who we now know she respects. So how do we facilitate these conversations? We think about who's that black worker she respects who just told me that he and his wife in a house visit that we do, because we don't wait for people to come talk to us, right? We go on the damn doors and go see him. Okay, maybe not right this minute. Although kind of still, depending on where we are. But like, you know, we have to facilitate a dialogue. And so it's not going to work for me to tell her there's something wrong with that position. It's going to, it's my job to figure out who is it that she can talk to in this campaign, who's a coworker that she respects, who's black, and who worried that every single time at that point their 17-year-old kid was leaving the house in Philadelphia, um, they literally wouldn't come home because they were going to be shot, right? Like that conversation, organizers facilitate that happening so that people start to learn differently. We don't go, boy, that's a, that's a really shitty position you have. You know what I mean? Let me tell you actually how things work out there. Like that that's not moving anybody, right? So organizing is about how do you how do you make an individual work plan for thousands and thousands and thousands of workers in a single campaign? I mean, there's that's why I always say to people, my two favorite words are method and discipline. I mean, there's a lot of method and there's a lot of discipline um, to overcoming the polarization that exists in this country. And the best examples of it are hard-fought unionization campaigns because it, and hard-fought strikes because if you can't build supermajority support you will not win a unionization campaign in the United States. And then you will you will not be able to go on and win a strong contract, which is the whole point of forming a union, right? If your unity doesn't hold, you actually just can't win. And so it's a metaphor for the whole country. And polarization and futility and division are were really the architecture of the union busters that's now come into the White House and the, the, the sort of right-wing political elite. Like they are using every single tool in the toolbox that professional union busters use. And there's a whole lot of us who have taught 
tens of thousands of workers how to defeat that and how to overcome it, right? So there's methods and there's disciplines. It starts, Anna, with looking that nurse mm. I want to go back to and believing, like not condemning her for why she had that question, mm. right? I didn't yeah. condemn her. I was like, she's an amazing person and we need to figure out what's the right political education process that's going to work today in the campaign. Yeah. Yeah. No, and, and, and expanding on that, can you, can you talk a little bit about um, structured tests and why structure-based organizing when it comes to strikes? What does that mean? Why is it important to winning? Yeah, it's really important. Um, but also, I want <laughs> before we leave, I want to make sure I come back to sectoral bargaining, something that you were talking sure. about earlier. Um, as Great. not the panacea that everyone's talking about. But anyway, but so structure tests. I mean, it's up to you if you want to show a couple of slides that I sent to Kale. But structure tests are... What they are is the way that we, they are crucial in a hard campaign. They're the way that we measure, that's why they're called tests, structure tests. We measure and assess uh, whether or not we're reaching majority and then, and then more than simple majority and then what we call supermajority uh, support. We, they're, 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 they're something as simple as a petition, but I do not mean a petition like go online and sign. I don't mean that at all. I mean something that's a simple petition, one sentence long, that workers that at some point in the campaign will say, well, let's pass a petition saying um, we demand you know, personal protective equipment um, or we, we demand the right not to die at work. They're usually really short because workers don't have a lot of time on a job to read them. So you keep it simple. You keep it to the point. You hand it to the people that you believe are what we call the natural leaders or the organic leaders. Um, and you ask them to begin to carry the petition. Maybe you set a deadline. We want to turn around. Let's see if we can get to 55% on this petition um, over the next two weeks. And you actually set a goal. That's an example of a structure test. That's perfect. Um, and if you go to the next one, you'll see an evolution of it, which is a photo. Um, oh, yeah, there's actually the, some of the nurses I was just talking about, about to march mm -hmm. that on the boss. And um, that's in Philadelphia in 2016. Uh, in a really, really hard fight where IRI Inc., which is who Google's hired, by the way, now, when people, when the four organizers who led the walkout at Google were fired in December yeah. of 2019, it was just after they announced that they had hired, I, or it was announced by the New York Times that they had hired IRI Inc. That's who these workers were going up against um, in that fight uh, that I helped lead them through in Philadelphia in 2016. So that's, that's the nurses that hit their first uh, majority structure test which means they've got a majority in every unit and every shift in a big hospital, and they're about to march it upstairs um, to their um, employer. And it's, it's doing so many things at once. It's building the workers' confidence. But for us, it's letting us know each structure test we do lets us know where we have weaknesses, where we're strong. If a unit gets 100% of the signatures, you know, in several days, we've got a rock star leader. She's doing her work. She's building the union. We can move on and focus on a different unit. Um, and if not, then and then we'll have some place where no one hands back signatures on the petition. And that allows us to focus our strategic resources in what we call the biggest worst areas, places where um, nothing substantial is happening um, and we're going to lose. Right. If we can't figure out a strategy, there's two things we have to do in hard campaigns. And it's true in this election. It's true in the United States in this election. We have to flip antis. It's called flipping antis, right? In our lingo and union campaigns. And we have to move the undecideds. So we have methods that are about moving the undecideds and flipping the antis. And this is all like part of the day job of all good organizers. By, by the way, there's many of them. Like I have so many 
um, comrades who do work that I do that don't get the attention because they're just out slogging it right now. But like, there's a lot of us who know how to do this work. And it is an absolute metaphor for what has to happen um, in this country. And by the way, once you get past this, who knows when you get past this mess, but when you get past it, like, and when we go back to think about how do we elect candidates more like Bernie or more like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or more like, right? There's the same method plays into the primary fights that we need to have to primary the crap um, out of corporate Democrats. Yes, absolutely. Um, speaking of corporate Democrats, um, in your book, uh, you do touch on Silicon Valley uh, quite a bit. And I think it's important because they use a similar strategy as corporate Democrats in order to kind of launder their image. So um, I'm going to read a few excerpts from your book um, and then let's let's kind of dissect it. So you write billionaires in the corporations um, that undergird their one percent superpower status have so skewed the discussion that we no longer debate a worker's right to strike or even their freedom to assemble in the workplace through a union. With the rise of Silicon Valley, we now argue over whether a worker is even a worker. Um, just a quick context. Uh, Nando did an excellent uh, commentary segment on Uber, for instance, um, and how they refuse to refer to their workers as workers in California. Um, and then this is this is the incredibly important part that I think um, maybe we need to focus a little more on messaging here to kind of debunk it. But as you write, the big tech elite cleverly disguises their right wing anti-worker politics with Democratic-backed social positions like support for gay marriage and trans rights, uh, pro-choice legislation, ethnic diversity, and immigration. Um, so I, I love that you you touch on that because it drives me crazy when, like in California, for instance, California is run by a bunch of corporate Democrats, and they are mismanaging the state. There's no question about it. And they hand a win to Republicans because Republicans can turn to Democrats in California and say, look at how the progressives screw everything up, right? They can use that to their advantage, politically speaking. And so... Same type of strategies used by Silicon Valley. What do we do to kind of um, reveal what the reality is um, and kind of spread the message of, hey, these people are not your friends and they might latch onto the social issues. But when push comes to shove, they don't actually care about creating a better environment for people overall. Yeah. I mean, I like I, I like to point out and I like to I like to focus on um do they fund, you know, if you're not threatened um, by what your workers think, uh, why not just let them all form unions? Why not just actually mm -hmm. let them form a union? Um, and what are you doing about the lowest wage workers? Um, because the image of Silicon Valley, right, is these sort of like unicorns and these rich people. And that's part of the parentheses in that in that sentence that you brought out was like that they're only OK with rich queer people. And they're only OK with rich, right? Mm -hmm. they're, they're funding ballot initiatives called No Sit Lie you know, to drag uh, trans uh, women, people of color off the streets of San Francisco because they don't want to be bothered looking at them, right? So you have to actually hold up and illustrate like where their money is, just like right now um, on Ballot Initiative 22 in California, where they're spending billions to keep a um, majority of workers of color in poverty, right? That's what the Ballot Initiative by Lyft and Uber um, is about. So, you know, we could go on huge tirades about them, but even but their influence is even more so seen in things like I outline uh, Netflix, Reed Hastings, right, who's the biggest supporter of charter of privatization 
of charter schools in California and who bankrolled the candidates that have been running to try and take control of the Los Angeles school district and privatize the entire school district, take public taxpayer money and give it to private shareholders that Reed Hastings from Netflix is like the key underwriter of. So how is ending the public school system, flawed as it may be, but flawed mostly from disinvestment, right? And from the tax base intentionally being destroyed so that public schools have just been slowly disinvested in to the point where now a charter school can say, look, we have shiny new desks and we actually have ventilation systems that work in a pandemic. And we don't have to take all those problematic, you know, kids who have learning disabilities. Uh, so come to our schools right now, right? I mean, they're just, they're just, they're, th- they're real actions. And then look at, look at the factories where they're building all their shit, right? Part of what I try and say is, you know, Apple, whose products I will not touch, and it's my own little personal boycott because their image is so cool. And when you live in the Bay Area, people think Apple is so cool. Um, you know, and they had to create, they had to invent, invent and construct something called suicide nets in the plants mm-hmm. in China where the iPhone is built, Jesus. right? So give me an effing break. You had to create a suicide net that you hang between floors like they're building on the on the Golden Gate Bridge to stop workers from jumping to their death regularly building the iPhones. Like, what about that feels uh, fuzzy and good while they're making a donation to a, you know, campaign for women to have the right, rich women to maintain the right to, you know, pro-choice or whatever it is that, yeah, just, I think we have to keep hammering them, keep exposing them um, as hard and fast as we can, because they are no better than wall street. There's on a good day. They're no better than wall street. Yeah. It's funny how all the woke billionaires always love their charter schools. Uh, yeah. mm-hmm. And uh, you know, to an, another thing that, that has come out and it's kind of a, a, a newer thing out of the Silicon Valley bil- billionaires is this support for universal basic income. And and you write, um, quote, Silicon Valley faux libertarianism. It lobbies for massive federal tax dollars for research, for example, but mass, but muses that big government is not needed, has so taken over the battle of ideas inside the Democratic Party that even the concept of a national minimum wage is being kicked aside for some faux enlightened program called the guaranteed basic income. The GBI is an airy idea that somehow people will be guaranteed an income when their jobs are destroyed by robots. And it's, it's, it's funny because I just mentioned the Orrin Cass case for conservative unions. And one of the things, one of the points he makes is that if you have kind of these conservative unions in the private sector, you don't need any government regulation because the workers will just collectively bargain for all the stuff that they want. There's no need for government regulation. And it's just kind of a similar thing. Can you explain why you are not on board with the guaranteed basic income? Yeah, I mean, I should say, because I will get hate mail on Twitter, I'm sure, from people who love it. Uh, I can predict who they are already. Um, look, the, first of all, it's just... <laughs> the gang gang. <laughs> it, Forgot it's about so, them. It's so absurd to think that we can't, we don't have the power to win the right to strike as a movement. Like, let me just say, there's a single piece of legislation that needs to be passed in this country that everyone should put all of their fight towards, which is a fundamental constitutional right to strike, right, which they have in France. And by the way, guess what's happening in France right now? Uh, The French government, even though Macron's a pig and he's attacking the system, but still 
Uh, they just announced in France they're going to extend the payment of 84% of all furloughed workers. 84% of salary will be paid by the French government. They just announced they're extending that till next summer because it looks like the pandemic's going to continue. So that's what having the constitutional right to strike helps uh, set the terms of debate for, right? So the GBI, to me, it's just, first of all, most people don't understand in, in this country, which may be different than Great Britain, United States, who leads the debate from Yang to whoever, Silicon Valley guys, um, they pro- they're proposing this to ta- and to take away Social Security and payroll taxes as they do it. So what they never say out loud is the other parts of their proposal, which is we're going to give you all a thousand bucks. But in exchange for that, we're basically ending government and we're not going to have um, Social Security and we're not going to have Medicare and Medicaid, let alone universal health care, which you know, we're going to win sometime soon. Um, they don't explain what that whole package looks like. One and two, it's it just it goes back to structure tests. Like as a movement strategist, we have to set our sights on fights we can win. We have to have way more yes and no fights. Like one thing I argue all the time is there aren't enough yes or no. Like in union organizing, we win or lose. There ain't no, there's no middle. You know what I mean? Like you're winning or you're losing. And that that has to make us better at our work. And a lot of a lot of the left isn't in, isn't engaging in, in immediate contestations where they win or lose. And so they don't, they're not learning the skill that makes it so that you win over time. Um, and we need a lot of, a lot more hard yes or no wins that people have to learn to do so they get better at campaigning. And, they, and, and then like, why don't we campaign for actually meaningful things like the right to strike? I mean, if I always say, if we don't have the power to get the national minimum wage above $15 in this country, and we don't have universal health care, could you stop talking about a basic income of $1,000 that is worse than poverty and going to get people absolutely nothing? I mean, it's just, it's an absurd discussion. So what we need people to focus on is the constitutional right to strike or even just a really serious guaranteed right to strike. Because if we could do that, and I am sure those conservatives really do not buy that. Like when they say there are things they don't like about unions. I mean, it's always been in theory, a conservative market-based argument that workers should have the unfettered right to strike. I mean, you could find obscure libertarians all over all of time who would argue that because it's a market-based fight, but they never let that shit happen in this country because if we had the unfettered right to strike, that was 1935 to 1947, um, and workers had a lot of power and things were really changing and we were integrating workplaces and women were getting power and not having to just, you know, choose to be um, unpaid homemakers. So, we need to focus on things that structurally change the power equation, not wages. Like wa- wages follow power. And we need to keep focused mm-hmm. on what, like the right wing focuses on power all the time. I literally heard Joe, Joe Biden say something that is like a joke I make all the time. I always say like when, when the right gets into power, the first thing to do is like structural blows. They immediately start mm. undoing the architecture of key power. And when Democrats get elected, Biden with his mask on a week and a half ago, talking about whatever he's in Wisconsin. And he's like, when we win, we're going to create a commission on day one to look at police accountability. Fuck commissions. I'm so done with commissions. We don't need commissions. You know what has to happen in this country. If I hear one more Democrat talk about creating a commission to study something mm-hmm. that we've been studying for 50 years, no, we need the right to have strikes in this country. That's actually yes. what we need. And a lot of this could get fixed. Not a lot, you know, a lot of it, but like really yeah. focus on strikes give working class people power and then we win higher wages. You know what I mean? Then mm. we spend higher 
floor for everybody. That's what we did in the 30s and 40s. You raise the floor for every worker. So even if every worker isn't in them, this is going to segue us if you let us before we go into like me slipping in a critique of sectoral bargaining. But like you, you, you're not you can't. You, we raised base wages for whole sectors of the economy in the 1940s by having the right to strike and striking whole industries. We we did. We were doing sectoral bargaining without a law called sectoral bargaining. The law they want to put forward, by the way, and all the left whatever discussions now where the conservatives and the liberals and the labor movement line up. Um, it's going to take away more individual rights from workers to have a say over their contracts. I just, you know, we are we got some misguided stuff that we got to really sort out because workers need power. And once workers can gain power by structurally changing the power equation, then wages, health care, um, ending racism and a whole lot more can follow. Um, but powerless solutions like let's just give them all thousand bucks like it's we're a charity uh, ain't what workers need. You're right. I mean, I, I, fundamentally understanding power and doing what it takes to um, accumulate it um, is so important. And that's why your work is important. Um, Jane, this was such an important conversation. I'm so glad that you took the time. Um, And I know that we kept you for a while. uh, But if you have time, would you like to stay with us for our SALT segment? I probably have to go. I actually have a meeting to talk about uh, coordinated bargaining and some important topics with some workers in the field. So um, totally get it. Day. I love the show. It was a pleasure to talk to both of you. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much. All right. Um, Everyone, please read her work. Um, It's Mm. just because it's not about awareness and activating yeah, people. Yeah. It's it's about doing the work. <laughs> it's so necessary. And I'm really inspired by her. I also just love how strong she is. Yeah. You know? Yeah, she's a yeah. real badass. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, um, you know, speaking of uh, the difference between spreading awareness and actually doing the work, let's talk about uh, the wildfires in the West Coast and how liberals love to talk about awareness on climate change, but they don't want to do the work. Um, So uh, I'll intro this story. Wildfires have been ravaging the West Coast. Uh, California, Oregon, and Washington are experiencing um, incredibly difficult to fight wildfires. Uh, Firefighters are having a difficult time containing them. Um, At least 15 people, for instance, um, have died in the fires, with more expected as teams search through burned homes. Uh, The fires have consumed more than 3 million acres in California alone, almost a million acres in Oregon, and destroyed entire towns in Washington. That's based on reporting from the New York Times yesterday. So um, I'm guessing that the uh, amount of damage is actually much higher by today. But you guys get the picture. Every single year, California deals with wildfires, and every single year, they become more widespread, more difficult to fight. And uh, of course, this is climate change fueled the consequences of our inability to do something about climate change, mitigate the impact of climate change. That's what this is really about. And so now you have all of these corporate Democrats who have these positions of power talking about the importance of fighting climate change when there are people in positions of power who had the ability (laughs) to do something about climate change. But there's actually evidence of them going against what's necessary to combat climate change. So let's start off with one of my favorite people, Nancy Pelosi. By the, by the way, <laughs> check out uh, Shahid Buttar, who is um, uh, running against Nancy Pelosi. And uh, 
I really hope he wins. Uh, she's awful. She doesn't deserve any position of power because she's feckless. She's a coward. And what you're about to see is, um, you know, the rhetoric pretending to care about climate change. Let's take a look. We have these fires in California and in the West, uh, 16 people have died in Washington, Oregon and California, uh, including a firefighter and a one year old baby. Uh, we our firefighters have been so very, very courageous. Now we're again breaking records. Mother Earth is angry. She's telling us whether she's telling us with hurricanes on the Gulf Coast, fires in the West, whatever it is, that the climate crisis is real and has an impact. She's the most powerful woman in Congress. She's the Speaker of the House. She has the ability to actually do something. She has the ability to use the bully pulpit to pressure other lawmakers uh, into doing the right thing and passing legislation uh, to in the very least, mitigate the impact of climate change. But she's actually done the opposite. If you can recall, just last year, she had an interview with Politico where she was asked about the Green New Deal. Her response to that was, um, it will be one of several or maybe many suggestions that we receive. The Green Dream or whatever they call it, nobody knows what it is, (laughs) but they're for it, right? So, um, you know, typical snarky bullshit you can expect from a feckless, cowardly member of Congress who has all the power to do what it takes, uh, but refuses to do what it takes because, you know, she's, how is she going to pay for the $12,000 refrigerators of which yeah. she needs two <laughs> in her, in right. her kitchen? Um, I have more people no. to hit at, but go ahead, Nando. No, well, I, I just, the, the, the pose that a lot of Democratic lawmakers put when they're talking about this is kind of like a, like a 16 year old Twitter user, you know, like climate change is real, pass it on like on Twitter, you know, and it's like, you're in positions of power govern, please. You know, like the, the uh, Alex Perrine talks about this a lot. Alex Perrine writes for the new Republic. He, he, you know, beyond the sort of structural critiques we may have about the democratic party um, and the people in power um, and they're corrupt and all that stuff. But like, there's also just a crisis of basic, competence in that 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 is that they're not even good at like the sort of basic technocratic competence that in theory they could be doing so like california is a perfect example again democrats run everything in california every major city the governor senators like at all levels you know the vote blue no matter who is reality is real in california Mm -hmm. and yes there are certain structural problems with the way california set up like you talked about it when we talked about prop 13 and how it collects the tax base and all that stuff true all that is true but there are also things that could be done given the current structures of power that would help mitigate the climate uh, the fire crisis you know like mm-hmm. there is just a basic uh, dereliction of duty when it comes to like intentional fires and all that stuff you know like it's it, it, there, there could be a lot more done but they're not doing it because they're beyond the fact that they're corrupt feckless idiots they're just incompetent as well you know which is which is the bare minimum 100%. that we could ask you know, and, and they're terrified of exercising power. You know, I used to think that they were terrified of exercising power. There's some truth to that. But I also think that the, you know, biggest influence is money, really. I mean, they're backed by fossil fuel companies. Uh, they're backed by corporations who don't want to do anything about climate change. And they listen. They listen to that. I mean, of course, um, because of the Reagan era, and Ryan Grimm writes about it in his book, uh, We've Got People, I think that the Democratic Party was beaten so aggressively that there is like an element of fear. But I think that it's now devolved to a place of just 
corporate greed. And, and, you know, I, yeah. I just really think that's the determining factor. Um, but let me go on to, um, other lawmakers and look, let me be clear about something because every once in a while, someone will tune into this show and they'll be like, it's an election year. How can you go after Democrats in an election year? All right. Let me give you guys the caveat so everyone can calm down. Republicans are trash. I hate Republicans. I hate Trump. Yes. I think we need to beat Trump. Yada, yada. You guys get that, right? But the reason why I hold Democrats accountable is because they're the ones who just pay lip service to the issues that impact our lives every day. And then behind the scenes certainly do act like Republicans and we need to take the trash out. That's what, that's what I'm coming, where I'm coming from. So let's move on to, um, Obama, who is not in power anymore, but was in power for eight years straight. And uh, he's very worried about these wildfires. Um, So he's using Mm. this as an opportunity to encourage people to vote. He writes via Twitter, the fires across the West Coast are just the latest examples of the very real ways our changing climate is changing our communities. Protecting our planet is on the ballot. Vote like your life depends on it because it does. Nando, take it away. Barack Obama, uh, toward the end of his presidency, in a public event, bragged about the fact that under his watch, the United States became the largest producers of oil and gas in the world. He's like, he's like, that was me. That was me, everybody. You know, like, um, and it, it, so, and like, and not to mention like all the stuff with the. Do you remember the Dakota Access Pipeline thing that happened that no one remembers anymore, but happened under a Democratic president? You know, like. I have zero patience for that kind of pose when he was the president, you know, like he was the president and he objectively, uh, first of all, not did, did nothing really meaningful to stop climate change, uh, but actually like it, it did many things that would make it worse, like fomenting the, uh, the oil and gas production and things like the Dakota Access Pipeline. Like, give me a break. It's absolutely. Yeah. No, you said everything that needs to be said about Obama. Right. And it reminds me of the you know how the Obamas now have some sort of production company and they put out um, a documentary. Yeah. Yeah. Documentary on Netflix about auto workers. And it's like. This is kind of insulting. (laughs) It's so insulting. It was actually a very good documentary. But the whole time I'm thinking I'm like. It's, it's excellent, and it really kind of gets to the heart of, like, the problems in our politics. But the whole time I'm thinking, like, Obama, you were the president. You could have, like, you know, presidents can, like, fly a plane and, like, land near that factory and be, like, you know, do something about it. Like, they can get involved mm-hmm. and, and, and mm-hmm. help those workers in that fight. But, but he didn't. He would never do that. Yeah. It, I mean, it was almost as if, you know, as soon as he's done with his second term, put out that documentary. It's like, heh heh. I, I knew all along, just didn't do anything about it. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. now let's talk about um, actual lawmakers in California, Governor Gavin Newsom. So Governor, Gav- uh, Governor Gavin Newsom claims that, you know, he's a big fighter for climate change. I'll give you the oh, details yeah. on whether or not he is in just a minute, but here are some of his strong words this week in regard to climate deniers. I quite literally have no patience for climate change deniers. Uh, it's simply follows uh, completely inconsistent that point of view with the reality on the ground, the facts as we are experiencing. You may not believe it intellectually, but your own eyes, your own experiences tell a different story. 
Now, I mean, Gavin Newsom, of all people, should be very concerned about these wildfires because all that smoke is obviously screwing up his voice. Um, <laughs> but again, he's just not willing to do what it takes uh, to combat uh, climate change. Now, on a state level, there are things you can do. I do acknowledge that it's not just about individual states or even individual countries. We really need mm-hmm. solidarity worldwide um, in order mm-hmm. to combat this. But still, um, on a more local level, there are actions you can take. And um, Greenpeace had put out like a report card uh, for Gavin Newsom on the topic of climate change. I'm going to read you uh, what they gave him, like what his score is. But more importantly, what happened after uh, this report was put out. So they write that in October of 2019, Newsom signed a bill to limit oil and gas development on state lands. On November 19, 2019, Newsom's administration announced three actions to safeguard public health and the environment, advance California's goal to become carbon neutral by 2045, and manage the decline of oil production and consumption in the state. The move marks California as the first major fossil fuel producing region in the United States to seriously begin a process to manage the decline of fossil fuel production, although it remains to be seen how far these re- these reforms will go in reducing oil and gas production. The ultimate impact of these proposed reforms is unknown, and on their own, they do not meet the level of ambition necessary to match the scale of the climate and public health crisis. So they put out that report early uh, this year, and it's mixed, obviously. And and it's the kind of like incremental change that you can mm. expect from corporate Democrats, right? I'll take some action, but I'm not going to go so far as to anger certain donors of mine. I'm not going to do what it takes mm. to really combat climate change. And then in July of this year, turns out that Gavin Newsom was like, oh, you, you want to do fracking? Here's a fracking permit, fracking permit, fracking permit. <laughs> he gave out 360 fracking permits in July. Okay, that is relevant to the discussion. And so I would love to see um, how Greenpeace feels about Gavin Newsom's uh, supposed leadership on climate change today, because there really isn't any. And watching that Gavin Newsom clip, it it kind of encapsulates the problem with the liberal response to this, like, you know, like the insane kind of climate denialism that exists in the United States. Um, it's like, it's kind of like browbeating, you know, and, and saying like, you just got to look at, trust the science or whatever. And, and this is something that uh, producer Kale uh, talks about a lot and where he's like, uh, you know, you have to wrap this up into some sort of like uh, emancipatory self-interested thing for people, not like something that, that you have to, like not some sort of like thing that you that you're foisting on people and they have to like do some sort of self-sacrifice like for forever like the whole thing was about recycling you got to recycle you got to recycle you got to recycle yesterday npr put out a report saying basically sh- saying that all of plastic recycling is just a giant scam that they just take it and and they burn it like as if it was any other piece of trash uh you, you know and and like but but for for decades that was kind of the thing is like if, if everyone just took some personal responsibility and recycled uh then you know we'll we'll go a long way to fixing the problem and that's just not that's just not the way to do it you have to you know like part of the promise of a green new deal is that it 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 it, it that new deal part is attached to it, you know, that it, that it improves your housing and your healthcare and wages and good jobs and all that stuff. Like it, it is kind of like, uh, it, it ties it to the self-interest of, of, of regular people, not just being like, did you read the latest UN climate report? You know, and it's, yeah. it's just, it's yeah, infuriating. Yeah. yeah. I just, 
we need to stop allowing people to give us this like illusion that they're doing something just by spreading awareness. I think people know. Mm-hmm. I think people understand that climate change is uh, real, that it's man-made. Sure, there are some fringy lunatics out there who still deny it. Um, but when you're talking about yeah. average people, not the Koch brothers, I mean, you see it. It's right in front of your eyes. I remember yeah. um, traveling to Alaska and there was like a little tour group and I was like overhearing them. We were looking at the Mendenhall Glacier, which has receded quite a bit. Um, and this conservative guy was like, you know, I don't want to say anything controversial, but, you know, I just keep hearing about how climate change isn't real. But I mean, just uh, that that glacier climate. And <laughs> yeah. I, I like literally jumped into their conversation. I was eavesdropping. I'm not part of the group at all. And I was just, I was like, no, no, no. You should absolutely say things like this. It's it should not be controversial. Don't feel bad about it. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Um, your lawmakers are lying to you, <laughs> you know, basically. Um, but yeah, we need to have more conversations like that. But when it comes to people in positions of power, we, we, they don't get brownie points for raising awareness. They only get brownie points if they sign on to something as comprehensive and necessary as the green new deal. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, um, I think that does it for today's show. Uh, Kale, our trusty producer, do you want to, um, come on, maybe say, uh, some last words before we go? Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, I cut kale segment. Come on. <laughs> uh, we can cut it. I mean, we should wrap up in a moment. Just and we're because we went a little over with the the interview today because it was like an incredible interview. Uh, and so we're going to put that out later. And, and like, please share the good word on Jay McAlevey. Buy her book. It's phenomenal. Um, just on that last point, uh, I was one of the tens of thousands of people who descended on Iowa earlier this year to knock on doors. And I talked to a lot of rural voters who like part of the part of the intention was me and some of my friends. We were trying to go out into more of the rural parts of the state uh, because we figured the cities were already pretty locked down, which ended up being true. So we would go to more rural parts and two things. One, like you would have just massive kind of uh, levels of nothing is going to change. Nothing is going to get better. Like it was really, really, really hard to convince people that politics actually is a means to an end uh, for a lot of these people, especially in rural parts of the country. And, you know, I'd like to think that maybe I moved the dial a little bit here and there, but like, that's one of the things that the left has to like actually do a lot of work on moving forward. And I say that because one of the conversations I had was with a family who uh, they were Trump voters in 2016. They were on my list uh, and we talked and a lot of I mean, a lot of it was about healthcare, But a lot of it was the fact that the son of the family wanted to become uh, a small uh, small business farmer. And mm-hmm. part of um, part of that conversation was about climate change and I didn't, you know, it wasn't about, do you know the facts? Do you know the UN reports like Nando's talking about? Like, it became a conversation over who gets to make the decisions over land use in your part of the the state? Uh, Do you have control over your production process? And are you living in a a community, in a neighborhood, in a part of the country where, uh, you know, toxic pollutants are harming your health? Uh, And wouldn't you rather be in a situation where working people who have to live in these parts of the country can actually have a greater say over 
the health and the environment that they that they live in. And when you put it in those kind of conversations around ownership uh, and accompanying it with health and over, uh, you know, part of it and like they weren't anti like they weren't like, oh, we should, you know, you know, they weren't saying fuck the earth. Like they were totally fine with like the the idea that like we need to have a sustainable planet for everyone going forward. But part of that has to include them and they have to feel Mm -hmm. like they are in the in the politics and in the political project that's going to actually transform society. And so, like, you know, I'm not looking for some ego stroking, but like I did get them to switch over and and say they were going to vote for Bernie. But like it wasn't. Thank you. Um, but like it was on issues that matter to them and also matter to these, to, you know, to our ultimate goals of like public ownership of a safe, clean, sustainable environment. Uh, it's so easy to link these things and the right. environmental movement, which like f- since the seventies the has predominantly been driven. I'm not saying everyone, but like a lot of what you get is like, uh, what's it like? Sharon from Curb Your Enthusiasm, like Larry David's wife, like driving the Prius, that's like, you know, doing out of the, the goodness of her heart of like, we all need to make sure we're recycling and, and buying better, you know, consumer items. And it's like, if that's environmental politics, that's actually just class politics. That's like elite mm-hmm. class mm-hmm. politics, like beating a hammer over working people's heads. Like when you switch it around and you do environmental politics by and for working people, they're totally on board. And, yep. uh, that's, yeah. Yeah. That's such a good point, Kale. And like you did the work and you were willing to meet people where they're at, you know? And I think it's so important. And it's something that I think about a lot because I kind of have to deprogram myself, right? Don't talk down at people, meet them where they're at. And, and like, but it's true. I mean, everything all the training you get in journalism school and all the conversations you hear on in the media, it's just all people who are incredibly well-paid, you know, have these insane contracts, are beautiful people who got hired because they want to be news actors and actresses, talking down at people. And it turns people off. I mean, and same thing with some politicians, you know, in the Democratic Party, certainly, you see it all the time you have to meet people where they're at. And I'm really glad that you shared um, that anecdote because it's, it's what works, right? And it goes back to what Jane was talking about um, in our interview. Doing the work means putting yourself in conversations that might be uncomfortable, but that's how you start winning over hearts and minds. If you just put yourself in some echo chamber with people who agree with you, okay, great. I mean, it may, might feel good, you might feel empowered, but you're not really changing anything. So, right. yeah. yeah. And, and again, is politics a means to an end of changing society or is it your thing? Your kind of what makes you interesting amongst your friends. And yeah. this mm-hmm. is not, I don't do this because this is like, this makes me feel good. Or it's like my identity. Like I wish I didn't uh, have to be a, a socialist or a Marxist. Well, I work at, I work at Jacobin magazine. What do you expect? Thanks, but course. like, but, yeah. I don't want to have to be a socialist and a Marxist for the rest of my life. I wish we actually like could redistribute wealth and could have greater decision-making power in the economy. Like I wish that we lived in a world where we could just talk about art all day. Like (laughs) we can't because like we necessarily need to actually engage in these fights right now, at least, you know, again, 
I'm employed at a political magazine. Not everyone has as much time as I have to do this kind of work, but some part of our lives, portion of our weeks, of our months dedicated to some kind of project to advancing the, you know, the collective interest of millions of working people is needed. And we need more people who are, you know, putting in, putting in the work, putting in the time. Yeah. Putting in the I work. It's a good place to leave it. Um, so thank you to everyone watching. Um, one way that you can help out uh, this show and Jacobin overall is to share this video, share the stream when we're doing the show live. Um, please subscribe to Jacobin. Go to youtube.com slash Jacobin mag, youtube.com slash Jacobin mag. Subscribe. And right. um, yeah, thank you for your support. The issue. Yes. You know, I, I haven't gotten mine yet. I don't know what's going on. I'm kind of freaking out about it. <laughs> but anyway, um, I'll, I'll hit up Bashkar about that. Um, but everyone, have an awesome weekend. Have a great week. And remember, you got to do the work. See you soon. Thank you.